We often hear stories about the vast reach and sheer strength of China's domestic surveillance capabilities. Perhaps one of the most talked about is China's so-called social credit system, often compared to some kind of nationwide video game where people are scored on how well they behave and penalized when they fall foul of the system. Joining me now is Vincent Brousset. He's an analyst with the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin and author of China's Social Credit Score, Untangling Myth from Reality. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for having me. I mean, this is a subject that's garnered a lot of fascination over the years because it does sound like some sort of video game scoring system for a population of 1.3 billion people. Uh, but for listeners who aren't familiar with the social credit system in general, uh, what, what are its origins and, and, and what was it sort of designed to do initially? Uh, the social credit system originated in 1999, so actually quite a, quite a long time ago. Um, and that was a very turbulent time. I mean, China had just started its reform uh, all the way from the kind of the Maoist era only two decades ago. Uh, so its market economy was ripe with fraud. Uh, you can think of the counterfeit products uh, that, that we, of course, kind of still associate China with. Uh, but also for China's population, things like food safety scandals, such as the, the melatonin taint milk uh, scandal in 2008, really simply people in China did not trust their own market. They did not trust the market supervision. Um, they did not trust its own government uh, or their own government, sorry. Um, and basically the social credit system came about as an idea to punish all of that fraudulent behavior. Um, and of course, fraudulent behavior in kind of China's broad interpretation of the term, uh, which also gets to include some kind of issues for political control. Uh, but ultimately, its goal, therefore, was to, to simply improve trust um, and to make sure that its market economy simply uh, worked in a more fair and in a more uh, trustworthy, less fraudulent way. So at what point does it become interpreted as a scoring system, how one thinks of a video game sort of losing and gaining lives? When does that narrative start to take hold? Uh, that started just around 2014, 2015. Um, in 2014, the Chinese authorities had released uh, their planning outline for the construction of the social credit system. Um, and in that document, they basically outlined all the different ways in which they wanted to construct the social credit system. To be clear, scoring was not a part of it. Um, but some analysts and, uh, and some news outlets uh, kind of started tying different things together. Um, there were, for instance, uh, systems like those run by Alibaba uh, called Sesame Credit, um, that attempted to rate someone's credit worthiness. So quite simply, just like your credit card, how likely are you able to repay your loans? And they had turned that into a score. Um, and so the connection was made between what Alibaba was doing and what the Chinese government was doing. Um, now, it's unfair to say that there was no link between those two at all. Um, they were kind of part of the same policy initiative. Um, but in the end, that ended up not materializing. And there ended up being no kind of idea of implementing such a score nationwide. Uh, but this image just kept sticking. Uh, I mean, it, it, um, it's very easy to associate it with, uh, like, I think what everyone has read, like 1984, um, like perhaps you've watched Black Mirror, um, the image simply stuck. And it certainly plays into a lot of our beliefs about sort of technical autocracy, right, that exists, that we see existing in, in what is, I mean, China in many ways, has a lot of characteristics that, that are worthy of, of talking about it in dystopian ways, but certainly not a social credit system, I guess. The, the one thing that I found interesting is there were some pilot projects that sort of started to lean somewhere towards what was talked about, but they weren't, they weren't all that 
they weren't national and they weren't that organized. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so the Alibaba Sesame credit that I just alluded to was a commercial version of, of such an experiment. Uh, but there have also been governments uh, like in cities like Hangzhou, um, the multi-million city in, in the developed Zhejiang, um, that had also developed its own uh, kind of Osmanfis score uh, or social credit score, it was called. Um, and these kind of what they initially tried to do is they try to, in some cases, um, assess, you know, whether you separate your garbage correctly. Uh, if you eat on a subway, uh, God forbid, uh, or if you cross the red light, uh, these kinds of things. Um, these initiatives certainly did happen and they happened at a local scale. To some extent, they were encouraged by the central government. I mean, quite quickly, uh, after a couple of years, the, the central authorities were uh, kind of started to realize that, well, you know, perhaps it's a bit ambiguous. Perhaps it's prone to abuse. Um, so they really cut off all of these scoring systems and said very clearly, okay, you're allowed to use these scoring systems, uh, but you're not allowed to take into data on jaywalking. You're not allowed to punish people for having low scores. Uh, so by now, uh, after a couple of years of experimentation, these scoring systems are essentially like a loyalty rewards program. Like if you fly a lot with your airline, you get some points, you can exchange them for, you know, a minor seat upgrade. Um, these kind of local scoring systems right now look a lot like that. How are they different, though, from how we understand loyalty? Because we understand loyalty points as sort of you buy something somewhere and you get points. This is a little bit different. Uh, it can, for instance, include volunteering. So if you've done a lot of volunteering work, you can get some points for that. Um, generally speaking, it includes whether you pay your taxes on time all the time. Uh, if you pay your taxes on time, then, you know, perhaps uh, you can file your taxes next time, uh, but have to go through a little bit of less administrative and bureaucratic kind of hassle uh, for the next time. Because really what this fundamental idea of the social credit system is, is if you've been proven trustworthy in one field, you can be trusted everywhere, right? Uh, and inversely, if you've been proven untrustworthy somewhere else, then you probably cannot be trusted somewhere somewhere else either. Um, that is really the fundamental thought behind it. And that includes, therefore, all of these kind of regulatory and, um, and legal kind of aspects. So there is still room within that for, for something that's quite different than what one might imagine living in, say, Berlin, where you are, or Victoria, where I am. It, it's, it, I mean, not, you're not punished for bad behavior, but you are rewarded in some senses for good behavior in a way that we wouldn't see here. Absolutely. And, and I think it's very fair to question if, if that is something desirable, if that is something that you would want. Um, but at the same time, uh, such kind of incentivations are common to basically our entire society. Uh, like where I live, the government uh, has less tax on, for instance, groceries or kind of especially vegetables than they have on junk food. Um, government, governments everywhere are incentivizing some type of behavior that they find desirable. And ultimately, the question is, I think, as, as a society everywhere, where do we want to draw the line? what is a fair type of incentivization and what is not. And you can definitely argue that the social credit system and this kind of um, loyalty point system is not desirable. Um, but it's very different from the idea of every citizen gets a score that dictates their place in society kind of idea. Yeah, the sort of the science fiction version of it, or again, as you mentioned, the black mirror version of it, where you're always trying to, to up your score or, or watch your score drop if you make a mistake, right? Which is clearly not the case. One of the things I was interested in, Vincent, was that they, I know that by sort of the end of last year uh, or earlier this decade, they were meant to complete work on sort of the major phases of building it out. How did that turn out for the social credit system and where is it headed now? Well, first of all, 2020 wasn't really a hard deadline. I mean, it had been 
the social credit system had been worked on, as I said, since 1999, since 2002. Um, and a lot of these parts had already been active for years before even this 2014 planning outline came about. Um, and the planning outline basically didn't say much more than this is roughly what we want to achieve by 2020. Uh, so perhaps that's very nitpicky, uh, but, but I think it's nonetheless important. What was then achieved by 2020 was most fundamentally this idea of the carrots and sticks. So the blacklists for if you're untrustworthy and the red lists for if you are trustworthy. So uh, again, it, it refers back to this idea that if you're proven trustworthy in one area, you've, uh, you get rewards everywhere and vice versa. Um, one of these blacklists that was finished um, kind of in the period from 2014 to 2020 was the court judgment blacklist, which means that if you do not comply with a court order, uh, the courts can add you to the blacklist and then they will restrict you from all kinds of luxury expenses. The idea is, for instance, that if the court orders you to pay a fine and you don't pay that fine, then you definitely shouldn't be spending it on buying cars, buying houses, um, traveling by first class on, on the train, uh, these kinds of things. And so then this blacklist also restricts you from these kinds of things. Um, how, how does that work? How would, how, I mean, just, just in terms of how, how does that physically work? So, so for instance, I, I forget to, I, I refuse, for instance, to pay a parking fine or something larger than that. How does that, how do I then end up on a blacklist and how am I flagged each time I try to, to buy a first class train ticket, for instance? Uh, so authorities, no matter at what level or even individuals can apply to a court for what they call enforcement. So um, if, for instance, you haven't paid your parking fine, then probably uh, the authorities in charge of those parking tickets will go to the court, put the evidence down and say, you know, please add this person to this blacklist. Um, and then that information is shared through an information system um, called the National Credit Information Publicity System. Uh, to, for instance, the agencies that, um, that are in charge of uh, the railways in China or that are in charge of the airports. Um, and then basically those agencies are then again in charge of flagging that, oh, someone is trying to buy a, a, a train ticket, first class train ticket, he shouldn't. Uh, so we're going to add him to the blacklist now. Um, that is ultimately how it works. It is very much a human process. It is assisted by all of these information technologies um, but in practice, uh, all the essential decisions are taken by humans uh, and not by some kind of AI. I'm speaking with Vincent Bruce, an analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about why exactly China doesn't really need a social credit system as described in a more dystopian way, because there's enough surveillance in place already that uh, oftentimes they already know who's behaving and who isn't. Um, we'll be right back with more on China's social credit system after this. I'm back with Vincent Bruce, an analyst at the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin. We've been talking about China's social credit system, uh, a system that's often been described as something almost like a video game where 1.3 billion people are subject to scoring in a way that either, you know, for good behavior or bad behavior that then allows them to do or not do certain things within society. That we've already said is not the case. Uh, but certainly, Vincent, there is, if you look at sort of the surveillance society that exists within China already, the amount of data that they gather on their individual citizens, they don't really need a scoring system necessarily, I wouldn't think. They already have a fairly clear idea, as you were mentioning earlier, a fairly clear idea of who's on the good list and who's on the bad list. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much going on in China with regards to surveillance. Um, I mean, it's easy to look up simply the uh, number of video uh, or kind of CCTV cameras that are being installed throughout China. Um, it's, it's the number one in the world in that regard. 
Uh, I mean, I think it also goes without saying that, especially in minority areas, restrictions are being placed on uh, on certain freedoms that we take for granted here. Um, and uh, especially, again, with regards to religious freedoms, uh, with freedoms of movement, these kinds of things. Um, but these are often targeted towards a very specific part of the population. And that's different from applying some kind of a mass scoring system to 1.3 billion people. Uh, it's very different, really, in... Uh, in scope and in ambition and um, in ultimately also how effective it could even be. When we look at um, at technology in China in general, there is a, a sort of, a, a, there's sort of a misunderstanding, not a misunderstanding, but there's a lack of familiarity with what life is like in China, I, I think in the West often. Um, and then the sort of the techno-authoritarianism piece of it plays into it to some extent. You even wrote that in your in the article that you just published, that there is this sort of misunderstanding of the way China actually is and the way the government rules. And although it's not excusing the government for any of its behavior, um, it isn't quite, you know, there is there is some some stereotyping going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, social credit just fits within our image of both kind of the technological dystopia that, that has always been in our popular culture and as well this very um, pervasive image of China as the totalitarian surveillance state, which for a certain degree is also true, but also I think for an authoritarian state to work, it also has to, it cannot rely on technological dystopia only because ultimately that will also fail. Um, and therefore we should also try to see in, in which areas, you know, the, the, the government is either responding to concerns uh, or backpedaling on some ideas like the social credit score. Um, that is very important, I think, for uh, a good understanding of simply what China is going to be in the coming decade, in the coming century. And also, therefore, what is it going to mean for us as Americans, as Canadians, as Germans, as Dutch people like me? Um, we, we shouldn't miss that part of the picture. What is important about that picture, do you think? Because clearly there's a few things at play here. One is that the more we think something else is completely different from us, the less we see it in our own societies, surveillance, for instance. Um, and the more we think of one place as being completely different from us in a dystopian kind of way, the easier it is to not learn any lessons from it, I would guess. Exactly. Um, for instance, the, the United Nations put forward recently regulations to, or at least proposals to ban the uh, use of social credit scoring, essentially, um, which to some extent is, of course, completely fair, but it's also inspired by something that's completely fake. Um, in Europe, uh, there have been a lot of um, groups that have compared um, the idea of a, a COVID vaccination or a vaccination passport to, to a, a completely fictitious social credit score. Um, whereas there are, I think, genuine reasons to be concerned about technology in, in many different facets. Even such an idea such as the, the Corona kind of uh, apps, those in China have been used to, uh, they have also been abused in China. Um, but if we then focus on, on completely this kind of dystopian picture that is not necessarily correlated to reality, we also miss the real lessons that we could be learning about how technology can be used for control, um, how technology is also not the end all in, in many cases. How is it being, I mean, if you were to look at the lessons of the next few years, what we as society should be looking at in the West uh, about what's happening in China, what should we be looking out for, do you think? What are, the, what are the alarm bells that you're seeing, not a social credit system, for instance? I think one of the most important things about surveillance in China is that it's a combination of technology and humans. Um, China has an immense bureaucratic apparatus at the grassroots level that can literally deploy humans to knock on doors, get into houses of people, 
um, to basically ask them, how are you doing? Are you not causing any political unrest? Um, and it's exactly this combination of technology and simply human manpower that makes it so powerful. It's a Bruce. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.